Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today, I'm going to be talking with Jeff Blair. He hosts a podcast called Political Beats. It's hosted by the National Review. It's a music podcast, but they, it, it has sort of a political bent to it. Jeff interviews people from the worlds of journalism and punditry from the left and the right, and uh, they talk about bands, like they dig deep into the discographies of different groups. It's a pretty cool podcast, and uh, I wanted to talk to Jeff about that, but also this sort of general idea that I think that we're all dealing with right now, and that is, are there any bubbles that we can go into to get away from politics? You know, like living in the Trump era, it seems like there's things going on all the time. You know, the world is constantly on fire, and if you're on social media, you're being inundated with headlines seemingly every hour on the hour that seem to suggest that we're all going insane, (laughs) you know, and, you know, other people have commented on this, but in the last like you know two years or so, it, it just feels like every week is a new year, and it's just exhausting. And it's nice to know that sometimes if you want to get away, you can go to a movie, or you can watch sports, or you can listen to music, which is my favorite thing to do. However, it seems like increasingly you can't even do those things. You can't go to a ball game because there's going to be people on the left and right arguing about whether people can kneel. You can't go to the movies because people on the left and right are going to be arguing about different forms of representation or or which film should be nominated for the Academy Award. And in music, this has happened as well. We're having these arguments. We're using music as a proxy for political conversations. And of course, you know, this is something that I've been fascinated by for a long time. I wrote about this in my first book called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, which is a book about music rivalries and how we often will use artists and pit them against each other as a way to work out our own sort of feelings about certain issues in the world. That's not necessarily new exactly, but at the same time, just because of this Trump era hysteria that we're all experiencing, it just seems like things have reached a certain kind of fever pitch. And at the end of the day, no matter what your ideology is, you know, we still live in the same world. You know, we're, we're, we're still part of the same country. And there ought to be things that we can come together on. You know, regardless of what your ideology is, we can all go to a concert and rub shoulders together and, and sing the same songs together. Is this something that's still possible? So that's something I want to talk to Jeff about, you know, because Jeff, he is, I guess, what you could call a never Trump conservative. So he's on the more moderate side. As someone who's been a conservative for most of his life, he's often had to deal with listening to artists who don't share his ideology. You know, he's a big fan of Radiohead, for instance. And I was curious to find out how he deals with that, you know, because I think on the left, you know, being someone, you know, I would identify myself as a, I guess, more liberal-minded person. You know, I'm I'm used to listening to artists that generally share my worldview, or at least they're, that's what they're expressing in their music. So I was curious to talk to someone on the other side of the aisle about whether they can separate the artist from the art in that respect, as well as whether this is something that we could still talk about. You know, can I talk to someone like Jeff, who doesn't share my point of view on a lot of things, but who I know is a big music nerd, you know, and likes to talk about 
uh, discographies of bands and, and, and really nerd out about that kind of stuff. So I had Jeff on and I think we had a really good conversation and uh, I'm excited to share it with you all. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week and it is our old friends at Indeed.com. Now when it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. Now, Derek, I saw you using this earlier looking for a new, what was this, podcast host? (laughs) We're looking for all kinds of hosts for all kinds of podcasts. There's no need to... I'm I'm a little nervous about this, man. (laughs) But I know you're going to find someone good with Indeed.com. Now, when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com slash podcast. Again, that's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. So this was me and Jeff Blair. We got into it. We talked about politics and music and whether liberals and conservatives can still get together and argue about music without it turning into some fistfight about politics. And Jeff and I did have a really nice conversation. There were no punches thrown. There were no insults hurled. <laughs> it was very civil and fun. So let's get into it. Here's me and Jeff Blair on the Celebration Rock podcast. So Jeff, it's exciting to talk to you. you know, we've corresponded on online a bit over the years, but we haven't actually spoken. And I always yeah. say that the only reason I have a podcast is because it gives me an excuse to actually call people up and talk to them rather than just typing messages. So I'm glad that we have this opportunity uh, to finally speak. Oh, I mean, it is, it's great to be here on my end too. Uh, you know, we uh, constantly invoke your opinions on our show uh, because uh, both me and my co-host Scott find out that you have you know some pretty amusing ones, and you know I, maybe we're all in the same age cohort, but we do tend to align on that sort of Gen X, right. you know, shading into millennial vibe that you have on music opinions. Yes, and I'm also grateful that you are here because I know you recently had your first child, and you're you're still in the first sort of three months stage yeah. of, of parenthood, which I know is like the most psychedelic aspect of, of parenthood because you get no sleep and uh, you're up all night and it, it's, it's very strange. So I, I appreciate you uh, making it through the haze uh, to talk to me. I have single-handedly altered the bounds of time and space, my friend. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 am, I am on the astral plane. I am truly uh, a, a, a true, I, I am an astral traveler, as Yes might say. Uh, the, the, the little bopper, the snort hog, as we sometimes find ourselves calling him, is doing fine. Uh, he's a handful, but my God, it's just a bundle of joy. I, I <laughs> waited all my life to, to be a dad, and, and honestly, it's as, as great as it ever could be. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, congratulations on that. And for this podcast, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds talking about politics because this is a music podcast and I, I like yeah. to talk about music. But just to establish your, 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 your bona fides here, would it be accurate to describe you as like a never Trump conservative? Is that yeah, too that's reductive? A, that's about, yeah, that's about right. I mean, I'm one of these people where like, you know, now that, now that he, he's in office, you just sort of like, you know, you put your head down and it's like you're, you're running through a volcanic eruption and the stones are falling around you. 
<laughs> like, you know, like it's Vesuvius is exploding and you're unlucky enough to be living in Pompeii. And so you're just running towards the water and hoping that you won't get hit by like a giant chunk of stone. <laughs> it's like flattened because it's a disaster and you just want to get through it. Right. Um, well, I was going to say, when, I, was, when, I was just going to say quick that, you know, we're, we're recording this on Thursday, September 6th. It's possible that he will not be in office by the time this posts. I mean, who knows with the news cycle, <laughs> there could be many things that have happened between you know, today and, and when this posts. So I just want to say, like, if for some reason we are, you know, living in some Mad Maxian type post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic terrain or something on the 9th when this posts, or the 10th, uh, you know, just to, just to throw that out there. Yeah, I, we're, we're so, still going to so run this, whether he's president or not. <laughs> right. Yeah, the podcast so you know. goes on, <laughs> mushroom clouds or not. And I, I just want to say quick, too, I was reading a little bit about you. Is it true that you were, like, one of the first people to be called a cuckservative? Uh, oh my God! You found that article. Yes, yeah, Mother yeah, Jones. Boy. I was like, wow! I'm having like a like a actual like history making person on my podcast. Yeah, well, yeah. What wonderful history that is. That'll certainly end up, you know, like being told in the annals, you know, hundred years from now when we're documenting the Trump era. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's true, but it's you know, it's just one of these things that happens on social media. Uh, I was, uh, I, I'm be clear, you know, again, politics is, is sort of, it's kind of certainly not the point of my podcast or yours, but yeah, I am a conservative guy, and um, uh, I nevertheless found Trump to be obviously a rather egregious person, and I was not shy about saying as much online, and of course that's going to attract the sorts of people who specialize in internet trolling. I mean, and I also have to say that I almost welcomed their hatred. (laughs) I'm I'm never like too terribly scared uh, of these people because I realize that at the end of the day, they really are just ridiculous people who do it because they want attention or it fulfills some sort of bizarre deep-seated need within them, and I'm not bothered when they go after me when they say mean things about my family i do sometimes get a, a little bit pissed off right. but i just don't care when they insult me i think it's funny it's like you know, you know i'm going to be vindicated over the years i'm not really worried about anything else right right you know it, it, it's interesting you know you mentioned social media of course being this sort of cesspool of trolling and all these you know people from different tribes warring against each other. And it has affected not just the way we talk about politics, but the way we talk about other aspects of culture, because politics inevitably touches all aspects of of life, whether it be sports, music, film, what have you. And I know that you host a podcast uh, called Political Beats, and you're, you're talking to people in the political world, like writers, pundits, people like that, but you're talking about music, and I know that you've, you've talked to people on the right, but you've also talked to people on the left. I'm just curious, like in your experience, have you found that music is still a meeting place that's safe, you know, to talk to people? Because I know like, like you and I, in our interactions online, I've never had a political conversation with you, but we have gone back and forth good-naturedly arguing about music because you you have strong opinions and I have strong opinions and we'll, we'll kind of go at each other in that way. And at the end of the day, when you argue about music, it's sort of like, well, it's not that big of a deal. Like, even if we disagree, we can kind of shake hands and move on. And you don't always have that in political conversations. And I'm wondering, like, do you find that you can preserve music still as this bubble, or has that gotten harder to do? 
Well, I thought we could uh, up until this morning when I saw you saying really bad things about Arcade Fire's Everything Now on Twitter. <laughs> and and now it's in doubt because I, I got to say – Where were you for the past year? That is like the latest in a long of jokes about Everything Now. I mean that particular – I know. I know. I, I, you, you keep you – keep, you, keep, you know – Pulling at that scab. And well, that was like a meta products. joke about me making because, like, the, the the idea was to you know, like, I think the tweet was like, "What would be a characteristic thing that you could say in an anonymous column that people would know it was you?" And I said, <laughs> "Because it, it, it's obviously something you've been hammering." Exactly, on exactly. Time, so it was right. like a, it was more like a meta joke about me than about Arcade Fire. But you know, yeah, I've taken many, many shots at that album. Uh, I th- I think it's pretty good. I think it's certainly better than the suburbs. But listen, I'm going to get back to your actual question because it's an important one. And the answer is, I mean, obviously you know what my answer is. I'll give you two guesses, and the first one doesn't count. It, it's it's yes, yes. I believe that music is still a place where people can meet. And if I didn't believe that, obviously, I wouldn't have started you know a show and you know really gone you know as all in as I can in my in my free time on it uh, along those lines. Uh, and it's and I found it to be true. I found that you know there there is a point at which when you're a certain kind of music obsessive, when you when it really means something to you, it you know, speaks to you in your life. You know, you know at, at that point, politics falls by the wayside, and it, and it just becomes game respect game. Like somebody who who knows every you know obscure crack of the Beach Boys recording sessions from 1965 is gonna be able to have a really productive and fun conversation with someone else who knows that kind of stuff, regardless of whether the fact that one of them you know, voted for Trump and the other one is a democratic socialist. Believe it or not, you can set aside those kinds of things because if you love music enough, it's what you want to talk about. And if you're like me, you really want to connect with people on that level because you know I'm interested in I'm interested in all sorts of things. Obviously, you know I'm an attorney in real life. I you know I love politics. I love elections and things like that. But man, there's nothing I enjoy more. Uh, and I have to be kind of careful about this in public when I'm talking to people in real life because I can go really you know I can really nerd out. <laughs> uh, right. But online is a great place to nerd out about music, uh, not only because writing is more conducive to it in the one sense, uh, but also because people really start to find out that, you know what, even though I disagree with you about politics, here's a reminder that there are more important things in life than politics. And I guess one of the things that I will always reject, always reject, and there are people who will assert that, well, no, politics is everything. Politics is the most important thing. I could never get, I could never get along with somebody who didn't see the same way I do on these most important things. I could never even be you know, friends with that person or be in the same room with them. Um, I'm not sure those people actually exist. I know there are people who will assert it, but I don't know if they really actually practice that in their real life because I think it's impossible to behave that way. But I certainly don't believe it. And I've certainly found that like, I can bond with people on the far left or the far right or anywhere in the middle just as long as, hey, you agree with me that In Rainbows is Radiohead's best album or you want to argue with me that it's Kid A or OK Computer. I'm up for that. Um, and, and it's... The reason I created my show was specifically because so the editor of NRO, 
Charlie Cook came to me. Uh, I think this is sometime after Trump had taken office. You know, the first bout of all this insanity, and we were all tired of talking about politics. And you know, and of course, I'd said this to him as well. He's a big music fan. He's a musician himself. And he's listening. I'm just sick of this. Why don't we just start a show that has nothing to do at all with politics? Let's make it about music, and let's make the, the, the joke be that we get all of these political people on, and that nothing. Nothing whatsoever to do with you know like the stupid events of the day or anything like that. And when I announced it, like the outreach was amazing. There were just tons of people who wanted to join and do it with us. And we have a backlog of guests who want to go on because there's an appetite out there in this time, particularly for a, a respite from this circus that that you see going on you know outside our doors on TV, on Twitter, and, and things like that. So, you know. That's that's why I think that yeah there is a space. Do you think though that on with your show that the people who are listening to it do you get the sense that they're generally on the right and that they're drawn to your podcast because music coverage generally seems to be on the progressive side or have sort of like a leftist like like slant to it? I mean because I think it's not that extreme of a position to to observe that like music writing generally. Um, is written by people on the left, and it sure. has sort of that reflection of it, and that and that you know that sort of informs how a lot of the stuff gets written about. Um, do you find that that's the case that you have maybe more of like a right audience? And if so, do you feel like because you're talking about how you know this is something that we can all meet in the middle on? But do you find that like the ideology that people have makes them maybe listen in different ways? Do you think that that has any effect in, in that I think, regard? I think, I think on a practical level, it's probably true that there are more listeners who are on the right than on the left simply because of where we're hosted. You know, if you're going to find it, if you follow me, for example, I have actually have, have a pretty a shockingly even breakdown of Twitter followers who are on the right and the left. That That's – you know, I'm honored. It's a strange historical circumstance. But, you know, at National Review, obviously, you know, you're going to go there, you're going to see a podcast. Why are you at National Review in the first place? Well, it's probably because you lean towards the right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's possible. But we have tons and tons because these people reach out to me and talk to me of of listeners who are on the left. In fact, I even see people tweet at me all the time. They're like, you know, like, boy, this podcast really infuriates me. I'm not supposed to like anything by National Review, but this show is really good. <laughs> These people just talking about Jeff Tweedy for two and a half hours. This is what I want out of my music podcast. You know, here's here's a bunch of Wilco fanboying, and um, they don't, uh, you know, they don't get that in other places. And the thing is, is that. Even if the the audience leans more towards the right, I almost consider that to be a, like a fun challenge because that's why I like to bring on guests who are left-wing people. Like, hey, here's Chris Hayes, and we're going to talk about Beck for you know, you know, two hours. Or you know, here's Jane Coaston, and we're doing our Nine Inch Nails show. I'm going to expose people to stuff that they might have thought, well, you know – I would not have thought I was a fan of that, and I enjoy that aspect of it because I think music is, is kind of – I, I really do stand by this belief that, that music is a language that has no politics, right. that on a purely sonic level, which is where I approach music first and foremost, you know, on the melody, sound, rhythm, production, things like that, there's no ideology there. There's no valence there. It's either good or it's not good. It either grips you or it doesn't grip you. It either has an intriguing, conceited presentation or it doesn't. It has nothing to do with you know the appropriateness of its politics. Uh, it's only sometimes on the most sort of 
<clears throat> stripped down and strident music, acoustic music, Billy Bragg music, maybe, I guess. I, I always use Billy Bragg as a punchline, which isn't fair because um, he's actually pretty good. Um, but, like, it's only on that where, like, you know, well, if, if you really don't buy into the politics, that maybe you're not going to enjoy it that much. But I don't have any problem really getting into something like Nine Inch Nails, for example, you know, even though, like, I don't know how political that music is, but it's certainly not what you would associate with like conservative Republicans, you know, clearly not. Well, and there was an era too, and I don't know if this officially ended when Trump was elected, but there was an era where like conservatism was associated with like sort of morality, you know, this idea that like, you know, pop culture is out of control. There's too much sex, too much violence, and that we have to squash that. And that was something that was associated with the right. And I assume that maybe there's still some of that out there, but like when you have sort of evangelical Christians voting for Trump, you kind of feel like, oh, maybe we're over that at this point. I don't know. But I'm wondering, because you mentioned that we're both Gen Xers. So we both came up in the 90s, the grunge era and and alt-rock and all that stuff. And you're right in that music doesn't have an inherent ideology that, you know, if you listen to a record, you can enjoy the riffs or the beats apolitically. But there is a certain thrust to culture that happens, a certain maybe us versus them mentality that a lot of music takes. And certainly the music that we grew up on, the rock music of that era, um, there was sort of an anti-authoritarian stance that a lot of it took. I know that you're a big fan of Radiohead, and they sort of adopted that into their iconography and a lot of the themes on their records. Not always being explicitly political, but sort of striking out against ideas that maybe generally would be described as conservative. And I'm wondering, like, as a kid, I don't know what your political background was or your your evolution or whatever, but did that ever impact you or did you kind of roll your eyes at that stuff? Like, were you ever, did you ever sort of buy into that aspect of rock and roll because I mean that that's certainly always been an aspect of it absolutely I have and in fact you know I would argue this is this is where you can really kind of run the risk of descending into the weeds but I would argue that there is nothing particularly antithetical um, to somebody who is a conservative uh, you know in regards to an anti-authoritarian outlook this, I'll, I'll, I'll I think I mentioned this to you when we talked about you know you know doing the show and I was like you know is for a long time, even when I was a kid, you know, every now and then somebody would ask me, you know, usually online, they were like, well, you know, you're such a conservative, you're a Republican guy, how can you be such a big fan of The Clash or Radiohead? Don't you know that they don't share your politics? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, dipwad, I get it, but that's not the point. First of all, music at its best is is something where the, the politics are more generalizable than that. You know, if it's like, you know, you've got to uh, support the black bloc anarchists protesting the World Trade Organization in Seattle, which I'm sure Rage Against the Machine did a song about. I, I don't know Rage's discography, but it seems like the kind of thing that they would have done a song about. Like, OK, yeah, that's a little specific. And even there, I would probably say like is the song good is the melody good and i can sort of just mentally set aside the lyrics but you're right it's something that gets a little more difficult to like wholeheartedly embrace um but on the other hand does anybody have trouble embracing street fighting man by the rolling stones where Mick jagger says you know uh, you know i'll shout and scream i'll kill the king i'll rail it all at servant his servants i think the time is right for a palace revolution i mean if you read that lyric unironically he's calling for a, a bloody revolution to overthrow the english monarchy but nobody does we just think of it as a stone song 
because it's one of their great Stones songs. You know, similarly, I don't think we take Brown Sugar seriously because if we did, we would realize that we're we're all bobbing our heads to a song that unapologetically celebrates the joys of slave rape. So yeah, that's a problem. But we do not process music in that way. We always process it from one step removed. When I listen to Radiohead singing something like Electioneering or you know All Hail to the Thief, All Hail to the Thief on Two and Two Makes Five. Um, you know, I'm not saying, oh man, he's 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 hitting against you know George W. Bush there. I'm saying this song has messages that can work on multiple levels, which is what well-written songs do have, which is why I think music that's more on the nose is less effective. Right. I think of a song like Clampdown by The Clash. Now, if you know specifically what that song is about, it's about the rise of sort of like you know nascent brown shirt fascism in you know the among the English working class in like you know Manchester and working class areas of Britain in the late 1970s, right? But if you listen to that song coming to it the way I did as a kid in like 1996 you know, or whenever it is, I found London Calling. Um, <clears throat> that song. I, I could take it so many different ways. I didn't know what it was they were railing against. All I knew is that when I when I hear that guitar come cutting in and and you know strummer go one two three four is that whatever they're against I'm against it too <laughs> because damn that's a good song and that's what makes this music so great is that music can transport you and you're allowed to read in sometimes your own meaning. I'm careful about not trying to do violence to what it is the artist actually is trying to say to me. Because I feel that that's unfair. I feel like it's important to take a musician at, at their word. And if this is the message they wanted to give it, I owe it to them to understand that's what they're trying to say. But even then, the best written music, the stuff that lasts, is stuff that admits of all sorts of personal and you know more general interpretations as well as like some specific political program. And so I've never had a problem reconciling that. I can listen to Bob Dylan singing about the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll in 1963 – I mean, of course, first of all, who has a problem with that? I mean, that was a horrible atrocity. But second of all, I listen to that song and I think of that, you know, I can still identify with that song today. I think about like, you know, you know, a cop shooting, uh, you know, a, a black guy who has a gun permit and, uh, you know, is shot anyways because the cop is, you know, you know, obviously frightened and then he gets off without being charged. And it's the same message to me. It's, you know, uh, somebody in a place of power gets off easy because of their privileged position in society and i think hey you know that's the same story as the lonesome death of hattie carroll from you know, 50 years before right. you can generalize these things all over time and that's what great music allows you to do you know when you were talking i was thinking about um, chris christie and bruce springsteen and how chris christie is a huge bruce springsteen fan and i actually wrote about this in my first book that's a plug derek Plugging myself. <laughs> well done. Yeah, thank you. Uh, your favorite band is Killing Me, but I went on a tangent about that because I've always been fascinated by yeah. that di- that uh, dynamic where Chris Christie's gone to like something like 140 Bruce Springsteen shows, diehard fan, he's from New Jersey, uh, <laughs> and yet Bruce Springsteen won't give him the time of day. Like when Chris Christie was governor, Bruce Springsteen like went out of his way not to shake his hand, not to meet with him ever. And you'd think that if you're the governor of New Jersey, you would at least get a meet and greet with the boss, but Springsteen wouldn't align himself with Christie because he was a Republican. He's and Springsteen is a well-known sort of Democrat. He's like a populist icon. Uh, and Bruce Springsteen actually like went on Jimmy Fallon and he sang a song making fun of of Chris Christie and uh, you know taking all these shots at him. And you know I don't sympathize with Chris Christie on any level except 
in a small way with him as a music fan because if I knew that Bruce Springsteen didn't like me, I think that would kill me. Like, I would be devastated if this person I idolized didn't like me. But kind of getting back to what you were saying, the idea of sort of taking something as a listener, taking your own sort of message from something, because a lot of people would say to Chris Christie, like, how can you support, or how can you love Bruce Springsteen when he's written all these songs, sort of taking shots at Ronald Reagan and and republicanism and, and, and the things that were going on in the 80s. And Chris Christie would talk about how, well, when he listens to Bruce Springsteen, he hears a guy who pulled him up, he pulled himself up by the bootstraps and he was a self-made man and he, you know, epitomizes everything that's great about America. Like he, he took what he, what meant something to him from Bruce Springsteen's songs and that, and he made the whole thing about that, which is, I think, what all listeners do, not just with ideology, but like, like when you listen to a love song, you might just take one or two lyrics out of the song that seem to apply to your own situation, and then the whole song becomes about that. You know, I, I, I think we do that all the if time, you, but it's an interesting thing when you also know, the outside of the art, that the artist is sort of actively working against something that you would, you know, be sort of pushing politically in your life. I mean, it would kill me too if, you know, for some reason I became famous and then, like, you know, Tom York were to come out and denounce me. Like <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Right. That like, was, I've read, yeah, it's exactly. Like, he's read your blog about Radiohead and he's like, yeah, but this guy is a conservative. So, this is, I hate this guy. You know, like, if he said that about but, you, that would be very hurtful for you, obviously. I'm sure it would. But you know what? At the end of the day, the music would still stand. Uh, and I also, if I were feeling really brutal, I could uh, turn it around on Bruce Springsteen and say, well, how does it feel uh, that all those guys that you were writing songs for and writing about turned around and voted for Donald Trump in 2016? You know, all those guys <laughs> right. in Youngstown, Ohio, they voted for Trump after years of being ancestral Democrats. Uh, do you feel like you've been repudiated? And the answer that he would offer, I would say, is no, because, you know, I meant it as one thing. I stand by the meaning of that. Similarly, the answer for a person in the audience is that I hear in my heart one thing. I take one thing from it. Um, you know, even if somebody personally says that they don't like me because I, I come from the wrong political party, it doesn't mean that the music is suddenly bad. Although on a personal level, it just seems like yeah, of course it would it would make you feel more sour. Um, you know, I, I, I get by this by uh, you know not particularly caring too much about Springsteen after Born to Run era uh, one way or another. I will point out though that even someone like him, like it's so easy to to take his lyrics and not think that they belong to one. He doesn't say like. Born in the USA is not called Vote for Walter Mondale. It's called Born in the USA. Right. Okay? Right. It's a song about a Vietnam veteran who who got a really raw deal, came back home to a job that didn't exist and doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. That is an American story. That's a human interest story. That's a story that anybody you know, with a sense of empathy can listen to and identify with. That's not a story that has a political program necessarily attached to it unless you then go that next extra mile and say, and therefore we must pass you know, legislation A, B, C, and D. You know? And then, of course, people can argue about that. But to me, I listen to Born in the USA and I hear, you know, I hear a song about you know, Vietnam veterans and how they were treated and, you know, and, and the, the country that that they came back home to. I don't hear, you know, you know, a five five step program uh, of political reforms. I don't hear dancing. When I listen to Dancing in the Dark, that's about a guy who's sitting at home dancing in the dark. It's not about, uh, you know, the need to uh, elect Gary Hart, you know, <laughs> senator from Colorado. Which I'm just trying to pull out some 80s references here. Yeah, for you. yeah, yeah um, I like the Gary Hart reference. I appreciate that. 
Yeah, I mean, how long has it been since anyone's mentioned Gary Hart on any podcast? I think there's going to be a movie coming out about him. There's a Gary Hart movie. Really? Yeah, I think so. And there's someone well-known playing Gary Hart. I don't know who that is. If you're on Twitter, tell me later, you know, any Gary Hart fans out there. But I believe there's a Gary Hart biopic coming out. And so some some people will tell you that that's a cheat. Like, oh, you know, you're really not, you know, wrestling and reckoning with the fact that, you know, this is a very politically left-wing guy. And I just say I don't care. Uh, how much poorer would my life be if I decided what movies I was going to watch on the basis of the politics of the actors and producers and directors making them? Uh, how much poorer would my life be if I listened only to music that aligned with my, you know, personal sense of politics? I don't even know what I'd have left. Maybe, you know, you know, certain chunks of the Who's discography and a bunch of country music. Well, no, <laughs> I, I don't really want to do that. Okay, so uh, it, it's just such a, a desiccated, an emotionally desiccated way to view life. That you only have to, you can only throw in with people who are are, are part of your political sphere, right. and it means that you're privileging the wrong thing, in my opinion. Well, see, this is a this is the thing I want to talk about. Oh, Derek, I want to chime in. Hugh Jackman is playing uh, Gary Hart. It'll be out this fall. Hugh called, Jackman uh, is playing Gary Hart. Yeah, the, the movie's called The Front Runner. Oh my goodness! And he has blades coming out of his hands uh, <laughs> to get Donna Rice or something. Um, Donna Rice was Gary Hart, right? Or was that uh, or was that uh, Iran Contra? No, that was that was Don, Donna Rice, you know, and Gary Hart was, uh, you know, dared the me- the media to follow him because he's like, you want something on me, you can send your reporters and follow me, and so the media dutifully did that and caught him hanging around, and this is legendary, on a boat called the Monkey Business, right, right, with with, a, with Donna Rice perched on his lap, you know, canoodling or some such. Um, and that's like pre-social media era era too. I feel like if you got yeah. busted by the media cheating in like 1988, then you that's like. Extra bonus points for you being an idiot because there was so you know less media back then. I mean, now you feel like okay, everyone has has cameras on their phones. It's a lot harder to get away with stuff, but it kind of makes you realize what kind of dirt those televangelists had to really have been up to <laughs> to get caught. You know, like you exactly. Know, it was Jim, like Jim, Jim Baker out. and Jimmy Swagger. Man, they must have been doing some dirt. Yeah, it was terrible, man. So okay, so <laughs> getting back to the task at hand here, you know, you, what you were just saying, it leads up to something else I want to talk to you about with, because one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is that I felt like this was an interesting way to approach the separating the artist from the art discussion that has been very paramount in recent years. You know, because yeah. you know, obviously we've been talking about that with with artists who have committed terrible things in their personal lives. And even that has evolved dramatically in just the last couple of years. I mean, in terms of music, I remember in 2013, R. Kelly was booked to headline the Pitchfork Music Festival. And if you went back, if that stuff is still up, if you read the previews of that, written by music critics, the majority of those music critics looked at that favorably or they were indifferent about it. And ironically, at the time, it was looked at as progressive on the part of Pitchfork to book R. Kelly because Pitchfork was traditionally an indie music site and R. Kelly was one of the first sort of non-indie music headliners that they had. You know, he, and certainly, as if you look strictly at his musical resume, you know, he is a titan of R&B music in the last you know, 25 years. Now, five years later, of course, people recoil in horror at the idea now he's, that... He, now he's being deplatformed from streaming services. And right, like, exactly. Yeah. And then the idea that Pitchfork would give him a platform, I think Pitchfork even apologized for booking him. And music critics, of course, if that happened today, they, they would line up and condemn Pitchfork rightfully so for that. But it just shows that just five years ago, you know, music critics who generally have a very pack mentality, 
you know, with opinions. I mean, the pack mentality of R. Kelly was was favorable at that time, and it and it's changed, I think, for the better since then. So you know, we all agree that if if you're a criminal and you, or you commit these heinous acts, that you shouldn't, uh, you know, that that that, that should somehow maybe disincentivize us from listening to your music. Uh, what I've seen, though, certainly this year, is this is sort of starting to bleed into people's opinions in ideologies. You know, you know Kanye West being an obvious example, this person who... Right. I personally don't think that he has an ideology. I think his... I think he's a provocative... Provo- you know, he's, he's, he's a provocative person. He's a, he's a showman in some way. I think he knows... He, he's a that, troll. That, yeah, exactly. Is. There's certain things that he knows that he can do that will get attention... And wearing a MAGA hat, of course, was a way to do that. So you have Kanye West, you have Billy Corgan, you have Morrissey. Again, I think all these guys are sort of gadflies in a way. I don't know if they're true conservatives or if they've just sort of flirted with, you know, the Alex Joneses and and sort of like far-right politics. But they've all had their sort of moments of controversy with bad pull quotes. And I've seen people talk about those artists not just condemning their statements, but reevaluating their art in the context of those statements. And, you know, like when Kanye West was sort of having his meltdown, you know, leading up to his last record, yay, there were lots of think pieces written by people essentially saying that, you know, we don't know if we really should have talked about this guy being a genius, that maybe his music wasn't as great as we thought it was because this guy seems to be deluded in some way. And it kind of brings me back to what you were saying before. I I feel like on the right, if you are a conservative music fan, that you have to deal with musicians who do not have your ideology on a regular basis. And like you said, if you only listen to right-wing musicians, it's like Charlie Daniels, Ted Nugent, and, you know, a couple other people. Let's just say I'd be doing a lot of, you know, book reading. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But on the left, you know, this isn't something that, liberal listeners have had to deal with a whole lot. There aren't a whole lot of high-profile conservative artists, or if they're conservative, they're not public about it. You know, maybe they, they keep it to their personal life, but they're not integrating it into their music. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, it's interesting to me, because I just think about my own biases. Like, if I was listening to, say, The Clash, like you bring up The Clash as an example. Like, if The Clash had done, like, an explicitly, say, pro-life song, that would be kind of weird to me. Or if they did, well, what, like, about, what about the Sex Pistols doing an? Well, exactly. Bo- yeah, you talk about bodies. Bodies. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. Or if you know, I'm just trying to think. Some like if, uh, like if I was a kid and like REM was as conservative as they were liberal at that time. Like if you just flipped their political ideology, and they had the same music, but they were campaigning for George Bush in 1992 and not Bill Clinton, how would I have felt about them? And I think I would have had a hard time with that. And in a way, because what you're saying I agree with about how music should be a meeting place and how music itself is not inherently political, but these sort of mental gymnastics that you seem very well-practiced in, on the left, I don't think we're as well-practiced with that. Okay, do you remember that, that classic scene from The Princess Bride? 
where Wesley is facing off against Vizzini, you know, in a battle of the wits. And, you know, <laughs> which cup is poison? Which cup is poison? You know, and Vizzini decides, like, oh, no, it's this one, it's this one. He drinks it, immediately falls down dead after Wesley has drank his, too. And then the princess asks him, which cup was poisoned? And uh, Wesley says, they were both poisoned. I've spent years developing a resistance <laughs> to Iocane powder. That is literally the position I think the conservatives are in when it comes to these things musically. I've spent years that developing a resistance, a fact that, an inurement, a fact that I, I just don't care. I accept it as the lay of the land. It's the topography. It's what I expect. Uh, and I'm not just, you know, I'm not surprised and it doesn't matter to me that, you know, when, you know, musician X or actor Y or, you know, media figure Z goes mouths off and says something progressive, I don't care. I mean, it doesn't even anger me. It's not even like I'm like, well, that he's so terrible, but I guess I can get over it. I, I literally don't care. I'm, I'm pretty live and let live, you know, just as like almost all of my friends are kind of, you know, progressive liberal people because those are the people who I live by and who I live with. I live in Chicago. Um, similarly, I, I just don't care. I'm used to it. I grew up in a very liberal place, you know, as a child. I live in a very liberal city now as an adult. These things don't don't bother me in any way, but they do to people who feel like they, who, who have, I think, you know, had sort of complete control over the levers of culture and has sort of taken it as absolutely accept that they've had no exposure or at least you know, very very infrequent exposure to to people who who are expressing different ideas than them and when it comes from political or a musical you know person or somebody that they idealize then 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 it really hurts then it really feels like it's a personal rejection and of course it's easy for me to say well how immature of you and of course actually i i do think that i'm like you know get over yourselves people but it's always something i try to remind myself of which is that it's easier for me because i grew up you know in in the opposite perspective that most other people did. I've always been kind of a conservative person, I, even when I was younger, uh, probably because I grew up in a very liberal background. And so, like, you know, I had a contrarian view on things. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's purely a function, not of like, oh, well, these liberals are just spoiled brats. These people are, you know, little babies. They should get over themselves. <laughs> if, if, if it was reversed and say culture was wildly, overwhelmingly conservative, media culture, musical culture, and somebody started, you know, mouthing liberal, you know, slogans and stuff like that, you know, you'd have the same thing happen with conservatives. They'd well, start and, freaking out. And that's what happened to the Dixie Chicks, for example, if well, you recall. And I'll say, too, that I did see John Rich of Big and Rich his sound guy cut the Nike things off his socks this week because of Colin oh, Kaepernick geez. being in a Nike ad. So, I mean, there are extreme reactions on both sides of the aisle. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a also, huge fan I would say of... This is all getting worse now. I mean, like, everything right. is accelerating. We're, we're just heading into this bizarre, ultra-polarized era that, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, it feels like I mean, it's with Tom Petty straight into darkness. It's just like, I don't know where it goes from here. So there's always that to keep in mind that the timeline matters too. Things were so much different for us in the nineties than they are now. And even in the two thousands than they are now. And in the, you know, the 2010s, which is a, a very crazy era politically. I mean, and you know, and I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying about sort of, again, I, I, I love the idea of music being one of these places that people of all kinds can just get together and we can all recognize that like what's going on by Marvin Gaye is an amazing song. Even if you're like, well, you know, he was, he had a progressive agenda with this song or whatever, like doesn't matter. That's a great song or like sweet home Alabama, I think is an amazing song and it's written by, you know, a Jimmy Carter Democrat, but 
certainly later reappropriated by Southerners and turned into this conservative anthem. Even after that, I still love Sweet Home Alabama. Or, or um, Baba O'Reilly, which is you know the ultimate piss take skepticism on the entire Woodstock generation. It's right. just teenage wasteland. Hey, that's a great song. Guess what? Won't get fooled again? Really good song. It doesn't matter that it's skeptical of revolutionary values. People have long since gotten beyond those things. But like, But isn't there a moral component of music? I mean, I would say that one of the animating forces of of rock and roll for a long time is this idea that this music can change the world that if you write a song like say ohio that this is a song that can sort of galvanize people and get them to act against uh injustices in the world and that you can't totally divorce yourself from that because maybe you're missing something essential about music i mean i know for me growing up being a bruce springsteen fan that influenced how i saw the world like through his music it helped I think give me a certain perspective that influenced ultimately how I felt politically. So I mean, I mean, can, I think, I mean I think do you think you can really there, listen to your music like just totally divorced from that? I think there's there's also a mistaken assumption here that that conservatives who listen to music don't have ideals and don't want to change the world themselves. Right. I mean, I, I think it's the sort of this this assumption, this unexamined assumption, and I don't blame you for it. Everybody falls into it. Even sometimes I can sort of get back and fall into it, which is that we just all want to sit here and leave things as they are. Well, that's not it. That's not it at all. You know, we have our vision, uh, you know, of, of an ideal society, and it's not like, oh, yes, where the, the poor suffer in pain and the rich are just unrewarded, you know, completely disproportionate to the actual effort or value they create in society. It's not that kind of stupid caricature. no. I have a very ordered vision of what I consider to be an ideal society, and I really would like to, like, you know, change the world to reflect that. That's the same, you know, activist impulse that you know any you know young radical leftist has. It's just expressed in a different manner. And so, if you right. have that thing, you can find those impulses in all sorts of music. And I'll, by the way, point out that you know Neil Young wrote Ohio about ten soldiers in, in Nixon coming, four dead in Ohio, and then six six years later. He wrote Campaigner, right. all right, which is you know where even Richard Nixon's got soul, you know, saying, uh, you know what, I was probably, I think he wrote it when he saw Nixon leaving the hospital where his wife Pat had been hospitalized, I think, for some some problem, some disease, and he was crying, and he thought, you know, geez, you know, I, I think I must have been unfair here. I have to really reevaluate the way I demonize people. And then four years after that. He's writing flipping hawks and doves, you know, like Union Man and coming apart at every nail and like, you know, songs about Reaganite politics. Right. So like people change and the, even these artists themselves aren't always on the same map. Well, let's talk about Bob Dylan's various zigs and zags. Right, exactly. Um, when I think, again, it comes back to how like a lot of great artists are are contrarians, I think, ultimately, or they, yeah. they side with things that they feel like are maybe underrepresented and then they end up sort of supporting that like i'm sure neil young at points felt like he was probably reacting to whatever was happening in los angeles at that time and he's like well i don't especially someone like neil young who's such an irascible personality he probably felt like everyone around me just is dehumanizing richard nixon so i'm going to write this song that humanizes richard nixon because that's what i do and you know i'm, I'm going to be different right. from the pack no matter what um but you know again i mean and I agree with you. I didn't mean to suggest that conservatives is, don't want to change no, but, the world but, 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 or are idealistic. You, but I think you in on something. The art is empathy. A great artist and a great art is is empathetic. It's not even about just the politics. It's about having an emotional connection to something. And 
that's why Neil Young does that, for example. And that's right. why a conservative can relate to somebody who's a liberal with a liberal story to tell, because the empathy is there. Now, you mentioned at the beginning that you feel like music is still this place where different kinds of people can get together and, and, and talk about music and, and geek out about music, even if they may disagree in other areas. And I'm wondering if that is starting to go away a little bit, because mm. I feel as though conversations about music, at least in the media, have deviated from aesthetics into more of a, I guess, political conversation and talking about artists who may not even themselves be inherently political, but putting them in this political context. Like, to me, I think about Taylor Swift. Being, I, I was going to say be an example Swift, of this yeah. because, you know, Taylor Swift is an artist who, you know, if you look at her songwriting, I don't think that there's really any real political message at all, unless you want to say that feminism is like pervasive in her songs. Like maybe that would be the closest that she would veer into that. But the, I, I don't feel like she is really that kind of artist. I think she is an, an entertainer. I think she's like a great entertainer and she's writing great pop songs to, to, be, to be played on the radio and to be played in stadiums. I think that is what she does. And there was, of course, this controversy with her that a lot of people felt that she should have been more active during the election. Of, of 2016 that you know she didn't come out and i mean i think she might have did an instagram post where she suggested that she was supporting hillary clinton but she wasn't as active as as certainly as she could have or someone like katy perry i think was you know and, and other pop stars certainly were, were much more active th than she was and there seemed to be this sort of expectation out there that she take a political stance even though again you know she had never really demonstrated that in her art before and my feeling is always that if you feel compelled to speak out in your art, then you should feel free to do so, um, especially if you can turn it into great art. Like Ohio, again, I think is a strong political statement, but it's also just a great song. Like even yeah. if you ignored the lyrics, like the music is, is really great. And I think that's always the best kind of protest song. You mentioned the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll being another, that's just a great song. It's a it's, fantastic song. It's yeah. a political song, but as a song itself, it doesn't just rest on the message in the way that say like living with war, that Neil Young record from 2006, which Ugh. is just pure message. And the music was sort of purposefully generic. Like Neil Young talked about how he didn't want to have sophisticated songs on there because he thought the message was so important, but it really kind of makes that record sound like a blog post. Can, can I mention another one that always jumps out to me? Because I'm a, I'm a pretty pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun kind of a guy. But I'll tell you, a Pearl Jam song that I absolutely love is Glorified G right. off of Versus. Right. You know, glorified version of a pellet gun. You know, it's basically a song that's making fun of their drummer for buying a gun. Uh, Anti-gun song. And I love that song to death. Not only because of the music, because I think the lyrics are just funny. I was like, if you're going to package, like, you know, an anti-gun message into a song this is the way to do it because he sells it rare for pearl jam by the way not a <laughs> band you associate with humor uh right right but man eddie vetter just sells the crap out of that with with, with just a, not only a fantastic music but fantastic funny lyric too about like yo look at me i'm so macho i'm so masculine now that i have my gun you know um that's that's really successful political music and i don't have to agree with the message to think that at all 
But I mean, you know, I was on this rambling point about Taylor Swift. I mean, my essential point was to say that, and you, you hit on this. No, no, that was good. I like I like bringing up glorified G in any context. Um, but <laughs> um, but no, I mean, because you were saying before, and I and I agree with this that not everything has to be political. I think some things are bigger than politics. I I I believe in sort of the power of art and the power of music. Uh, being this sort of gift that we all have, and that this is something that we should be able to enjoy, um, but and I and again, I don't, I, I I think that politics has a place in music, especially again when artists feel compelled to do it. But I feel like we're reaching a point where it's almost being shoehorned in sometimes. Uh, you know, like I, I, I've read concert reviews cast uh, that uh, you know that were criticizing Taylor Swift for not calling out white supremacists who have who supposedly like her music which i to which i would say every artist has white supremacists in their fan base because if you are famous enough if you're famous enough to play a stadium a good section of those people are not going to be good people you know just by the law of averages so to be to expect any artist to condemn the the jerks in the audience like at every show i just think is unfair i think there's a really pernicious really pernicious element to modern media culture that politicizes everything, everything about art, entertainment, sports, everything has to be politicized. And I think, I think a large amount of this is driven by, by the internet, the advent of social media. My longstanding thesis is that social media is a whole and it's ruining us as people. This is very hypocritical and ironic of me because I've benefited immensely from my, you know, my Twitter account, for example. But it's it just, you know, people now search for clicks, they search for controversy, they search for heat. So what do all of these these striving people working in low-level media jobs who have to write articles where they get paid metered, you know, on how many clicks they get? Well, the easy answer is to, you know, what's hot? What's hot? Politics, especially in the age of Trump, is always hot. So they write an article with a political angle or they say like, oh, this is insufficiently woke or, oh, this falls afoul of, you know, these four different, you know, you know, particular issues that will get people to click, that will get angry commentary, that'll get even just people like, you know, retweeting it and rolling their eyes. It's a vicious cycle because that's what will drive traffic and therefore that's all that gets written about, even if the people who are writing about it and even the people who are reading a bit don't really care that much about it. And so it then seems to be the only thing that people talk about. But it's just so, so pernicious, this idea of the politicized life, that everything's got to have a political valence. Taylor Swift is writing a song called Shake It Off so you can get up and dance and enjoy yourself. There's 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 no need to have like a political message behind it. You know, when I listen to um you know everyone from uh you know Boney Vare to uh, your 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 latest uh you know R&B sensation on the charts, I don't need to know whether the person presenting it to me is politically correct and appropriate or not. I don't really care about their views on LGBT issues. Um, and this, by the way, reminds me of another story. You remember that band Power Bottom? You remember them, Stephen? Oh, yeah. This- yes. I, okay. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, this is a band that fell down a memory hole, essentially. Yes. And I remember, I actually wrote about their 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 second record. It was called Pageant. It came out in May of uh, 17. And I remember I wrote a positive review of the record 
It came out on a Wednesday, and by Friday, album. and by Friday, that record did not exist anymore, and that I mean, band did not the, exist. Like they were wiped off the face of the planet, which was an incredible thing. And it was because of accusations of of sexual assault against one of the band members, um, which uh, is a terrible thing. I think it, it, that's an interesting story because. This all, you know, because again, like this band, they they got a lot of great attention because um, of because uh, they were so like you know on board with like you know LGBT empowerment. Right. And I was like, great. Actually, I just I liked their music. I thought it was good music. That was what I was into it for. But yeah, and then yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you tell the story because I think a lot of people because again they've been memory holds. Well, people yeah, and, and it, it's one of those stories where I think every. You know, every step of the way, you could justify the actions that were taken because these accusations came out, and the record label said, "Well, we don't want to put the record out," and their manager said, "Well, we don't really want to work with this band," and venue said, "Well, we don't really want to book this band at at, at our venue," and you know, you can justify each one of those decisions. You know, yeah, like a label shouldn't be forced to put out a record that they don't want to put out, and you shouldn't be forced to stay with, you know, booking a band if you feel like. They've done terrible things, um, but it resulted in this very weird thing, sort of a Orwellian thing, where they just don't exist anymore. They're, they're, the record is gone. And like, I periodically I, I, Google them yeah. to see if there's any new news. There's like literally no one has – you can't even find their name with, with an article about them since the middle of 2017. It's like spooky actually. And, and it's very weird. By the time it's like 2020 – you know, people are not going to know that this band existed. And maybe that's a good thing. However, there will be other bands that um, have scandals like this in their background. And I think there is an interest in preserving the history to some degree, you know, that people, so people know that this happened and that these are the consequences. If only to say, hey, you know, don't screw around if you're in a band. Do not assault women do not do these terrible things because you, this can happen to your career it's almost also, like the lesson of of what that band was has been wiped away as well the music wasn't about that the music wasn't about the joys of sexually assaulting women i mean to to an extent that the music was about anything other than like really catchy power pop which which is why i like them right it was about like you know you know as i said it's like you know a, you know a gay transsexual transgender empowerment agenda which is fine you know certainly you know very appropriate in, in the modern era um it, just because one of the members of the band happened to be as it turns out i mean i guess i'm a, i don't want to assume that the accusations are true but he was alleged to have been you know a, a bad guy uh it doesn't render the music bad hey do we want to really kind of like break down all the bad things that led zeppelin's band members right. were up to during the 70s or the stones or david bowie because you know we could really dive down that rabbit hole and then all of a sudden we're not allowed to listen to heroes or physical graffiti anymore i, I don't think people will really have an appetite for that yeah i mean um, and again it's kind of you know again the artist from the artist uh, the art from the artist question which um again like five years ago i remember i wrote about r kelly playing Pitchfork, and I wrote, the premise of my column was basically that our stances on these sorts of issues, when we know about sins in an artist's personal life, it tends to be situational, that it's hard to be consistent across the board to have one stance on, like, well, if you if you do this, then I, I don't like you. And I, I use those examples that you mentioned, that there are so many great artists that, like, like, if you're talking about, like, artists from the 70s, 
chances are that they dated an, an underage girl at some point. I mean, it's just something that like, it seems like every major rock star did at that time. And I, I wasn't, you know, an adult in the 70s. I don't know what the standards were at that time. It seems like maybe things were more permissive with that. I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's it was much more out in the open in, at any rate back then. Whereas now we look at that and it's horrifying. Um, but it seems like those artists haven't really gotten their reckoning yet. I don't know if that will happen or not. That'll be an interesting thing uh, to see as we go forward. Um, I always feel like the best way with those sorts of things is to not, is to not whitewash the stories, to make that part of the historical record with these artists when we talk about their personal histories. Um, but we also maybe don't totally chuck it in the garbage either you know it, i don't i don't know about you steve i really liked the song layla until i found out that jim gordon murdered his mom and then eric clapton has a got you know conservative views about immigration and now i just think it's a piece of garbage right <laughs> right right you see what i mean it's just like stupid you, you you have to take the music for what it is and like yes this by the way like you know another thing to point out which you kind of got at is that the rock world tends to attract a lot of sketchy characters we just did an episode on our show on guns and roses i mean holy crap we had to have a long discussion about one in a million <laughs> right is, you, know, you know among all the other shady things that axel rose and you know no doubt any other member of members of the band have been up to um you know does that mean that appetite for destruction is a bad album of course not appetite for destruction is a great album i still like november rain a lot it doesn't make these songs bad even if you recognize that you know i wouldn't want axel rose to move in next door to me <laughs> you just have to separate the art from the artist in that sense well jeff i feel like we could talk about this for a really long time but i think we're cutting out okay we got we got we got to end it now but jeff thank you so much for coming on the show and i hope to have you back again sometime boy it would be my pleasure and thank you for having me on and by the way if i could put a plug in here everybody go listen to political beats on national review online you can subscribe to it on itunes and uh you know me and my co-host scott bertram uh we really nerd out (laughs) okay man well hey thanks again jeff i really appreciate it thanks hey take care all right so that was me and jeff blair from the political beats podcast again that's hosted by national review online if you want to go check that out uh, thanks again to Jeff for coming on the pod. That was a lot of fun. Um, Got to give a shout out to the man who makes it happen, Derek Madden. Thank you for producing the pod, Derek. Also got to give a shout out to the guy who wrote our theme song, Josh Copperman. Is it Josh Copperman? Yep. Thank you. I just want to see Derek Copperman. <laughs> I just want to make him uh, your unofficial brother. I'll, just on your mind. He's just on my mind. Derek's are, Derek is always on my mind. Thank you, Josh, for writing our theme song. And thanks, of course, to all of you our Celebration Rock Pod listeners for your support. Uh, We got a lot of great feedback uh, for our uh, Christian Rock DC Talk episode with Riley Walker. I actually got uh, a lot of emails from people talking about their Christian Rock pass. So that was a lot of fun. I feel like we're going to have to do another Christian Rock uh, podcast at some point, maybe delve into Jars of Clay. Guys, thanks again for listening to this episode. Uh, We will be back again next week with more Celebration Rock. Take care. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.